Hi, and welcome to The Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at The Strad. Bridges, Pont, if you're a player, you've probably learnt from an early age to respect the bridge. Don't knock the bridge over. Oh, don't move the bridge yourself. Take it to a luthier. Oh, my bridge is warped and I don't know why. Here to demystify the topic slightly for players such as myself is Aubrey K. Alexander. She recently won gold medals for her viola and cello bridges at the International Violin Bridge Competition in October 2022. Find out how long it typically takes her to make a bridge, as well as the challenges that come with crafting such an intricate component of a stringed instrument. As well as what German shepherd puppies have to do with bridges. You heard it here first. Here's Aubrey K. Alexander. Aubrey, welcome to the Strad podcast. Uh, so we're here to talk about bridges. I've never spoken about bridges on the Strad podcast before, and bridges are a super important component of stringed instruments, obviously. But the reason why um, I wanted to talk to you is that uh, recently we covered the International Violin Bridge Competition in October, at which you won two gold medals. Congratulations. Thank you. For your viola and your cello bridge. Wonderful achievement. So I'm speaking from the point of view um, of a player. I play the cello. I'm not a luthier. But what I do know is that bridges do require a lot of care and attention. And I imagine, you know, a quiet moment to create (laughs) a bridge. It's not something that you can just knock together in a couple minutes, right? Correct. <laughs> so, you know, first of all, just some general questions about bridges. Um, you know, how long does a bridge typically take to make? Well, I would say that depends on the luthier. For me, I'm always attempting to improve my speed while not sacrificing quality because sometimes in an emergency, you don't have much time and it has to be excellent. But I'd really prefer to have an an unrestricted amount of time. So I'd say like if I'm well caffeinated, listening to some piano music and importantly uninterrupted, um, a a violin, (laughs) yes, um, a violin or a viola bridge might take me two hours um, and a cello bridge might take me four to five. But also that doesn't happen all at once. I usually would fit the feet, set the crown close to its final height, not completely finished. Um, and then actually string the instrument up under tension, preferably overnight, because some things can change. And so I want I want that bridge to have been under tension for a little bit before I actually carve it out. But the total time put together, um, if you're just clocking it with a stopwatch, might be two hours for violin, viola, four to five for a cello. It, it, it varies depending on the luthier. Some people take longer, some people might be faster. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it would be best to take your time because as you mentioned you don't want to sacrifice quality and you know in terms of that what do you find the most challenging part about making a bridge because I I just think about my bridge on my cello and there are some Mm -hmm. really really intricate parts in there Mm -hmm. I don't know the exactly I probably should know the terminology but I don't know the exact terminology of just like you know those little turns those like really intricate carvings it really is a piece of art like what's the most challenging part of making bridges but also you know what's the most enjoyable part for me i'd say the most challenging part well first of all the entire bridge is a challenge for me fitting the feet i find 
that I like that the least. It's not so bad for most instruments, but sometimes, particularly on an older instrument, you might have these large salad bowls of space develop on the top in like little... Um, like dips in the... Compressions, yeah, compressions sure. of the varnish dips right there. And fitting the feet to that, particularly on a cello with some interesting texture there, it's going to take a long, long time and it can be a little frustrating. So I'd say that's the thing I'm probably least favorite about about doing a bridge, but the most enjoyable part, I would say, is like the final finishing of the surfaces when you, um, because of course, you know, we plane the front of the bridges and um, a lot of people use either files or a flat sandpaper file um, to smooth out the planes. But once you've gone through all of the grits and you've, you've done any staining that you're going to do, and polished it by polishing like I might take a, a very clean piece of cloth that has a little bit of texture on it and then just rub the bridge on that and you get this beautiful shine. When you're seeing that, the final, that final um, reflective result, that's the most enjoyable part for me. Yeah, I imagine a culmination of your hours of work and it's like, oh, it's done and it looks so yes. pretty now. Yes, <laughs> yeah. but when I'm looking at the top of the cello with these little almost mountainous regions of varnish that I need to fit to. I'm just like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely got your work cut out for you there. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, actually, because, I mean, obviously so much work goes into making a bridge that players might not necessarily recognize. You know, how can you spot a well-made bridge? For me, I mean, I can definitely see a bridge that hasn't, had any work on it done at all Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd be able to spot a few little things but like you know from your point of view how would you describe a bridge that looks good? So there's a lot that goes into a well-made bridge Um, and as as a luthier I would look at a very very long list of picky things Um, but for a player I would suggest to look at a few elements Um, The first being the feet. Do they look like they fit to the top of the instrument? Are your string heights appropriate? Are they not too tall and not too low? The crown, meaning the curvature of the very top where the strings pass over, um, are you able to cross between strings without picking up another one accidentally? And then also when you look at the bridge from the side, does it look like it's incredibly thick or does it look like it's far too thin? Those are just like some things that you can kind of gauge if you don't have a lot of luthier experience. But then again, as a, as a luthier, I mean, I would be looking at every little tiny detail. <laughs> There's a whole, a whole long list of things. So I imagine for your recent gold medals at the International Violin Bridge Competition, mm-hmm. you know, you've got luthiers looking at this long list of details and criteria that perhaps you need to mm-hmm. fulfill. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your entries, you know, your, your cello bridge and your viola bridge. Your cello bridge, you know, I noticed that you chose to make a, a Belgian yes. bridge. You know, do you have a, a particular preference between Belgian, the sort of more slender build of a Belgian bridge, I suppose, from my point of view, over a French bridge? Yes, I, I do prefer Belgians to French bridges. Um, but that's perhaps a little selfishly just because of the lines, how they look, and how fun they are to carve. I would say that there's there's going to be options and times when you might want to choose one style over the other. 
for example, a Belgian bridge can brighten up a dark instrument while a French bridge um, might be better suited to an instrument that's already too bright to begin with. And that's mainly a, a distribution of mass thing that, that a luthier can play with there. In terms of like my preference, I really, I do prefer the Belgian bridges and a lot of it has to do with when I'm carving the legs. When I'm holding a Belgian bridge, I can take a nice long slice down that leg. And with a French bridge, there's more of a curve to it. So it's kind of like if you're driving around a really tight curve and you have to slow down um, and, and, you're, and you're not quite sure what's on the other side. Well, as if you're driving and there's a gentle curve and there's no trees and you can see it's just beautiful. So. Ah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I get what you mean. And you can kind of, I don't know, go with momentum a bit if you, you're able to take a nice slice as you said yes I've, nice I've slice never I've, I've never spoken about bridges in this way before it's like we could be talking about cheese before <laughs> we know but no we're not that's really interesting because I've never really thought of it from that point of view before personally I've got a Belgian bridge on my cello because that's what my luthier suggested to me um, I was wanting to brighten up the sound of my mm -hmm. modern instrument so she said why don't you go Belgian mm -hmm. and then I did and that's the bridge that I have currently but I have had a French bridge as well but never really thought about it from the point of view of a luthier and you know with your viola bridge that you carved apart from size how is a viola bridge different from a violin bridge you know what do you have to take into consideration when you're making a bridge for viola well violas come in lots of different sizes and you know for for oh god if we're, like for a violin bridge you might have your width options might go from 39 millimeters to 42 millimeters with a viola like the commercially available blanks on the small side you might go from 46 up to 52 and you might even have to make a custom blank that's larger than that so there's a lot of a lot of size variance in the viola itself not only back length but width to take into consideration there but just as a general thought on viola bridges um, i would want a viola bridge to be just a little bit overall a little bit bulkier than a violin bridge of a proportional size if you were to scale them down so that they were the same size the viola bridge would look like it Mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Stockier? Yeah, just a, like just a little bit more mass, you know? Yeah. Um, it's got to hold more pressure, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's I'm doing all these gestures that no one's going to be able to see on the podcast, but right. <laughs> yeah. Just mainly a little bit more, a little bit more mass in a viola bridge than if it were a, a proportionally sized violin bridge. Oh, yes. But viola bridges are, are very fun to carve because they're larger. Sometimes they remind me of like little, um, like a German shepherd puppy and it's grow hasn't grown into its feet yet. And you know, it has these huge feet. <laughs> yeah, and you're big like, paws, oh, yeah. big paws. And you're like, oh, that's adorable, but it's tripping over itself. That's sometimes when I'm carving a viola bridge, I'm like, look at this little monster truck right here oh my gosh what an what an interesting analogy it's like yes i love carving viola bridges because they remind me of puppies yes. clumsy puppies so what would a cello bridge be you know going along with that analogy you know in terms of dogs what would a cello bridge be oh gosh i've never thought of that well i guess it would depend if it's uh french or belgian i mean a long slender poodle or like a how tall are Irish setters? I don't know. My my dog was a champion Norwich Terrier, so I'm used. I'm 
I see tiny little um, terriers when I think dogs, and generally except for a German Shepherd. So I would say, how, how tall is an Irish Setter? Are they pretty? I've got no idea. Yeah. But they're, they're kind of a medium-sized dog, Okay, right? so something very, what's the dog that has the incredibly long flowing hair that's very lithe and, and long? That would be a Belgian. And, um, and a French is probably like a bulldog. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so quite, quite like heavy set and yeah, maybe yeah, but stand up to a lot of a lot of things. <laughs> but but that being said, a French bridge doesn't have to be a particular. Uh, you can you can do quite a bit of different styles of carving. I wouldn't want to like equate all French bridges with like stocky and and you know strong because you can do quite a bit of carving to manipulate the tone. On no matter what model, you might even have a little bit more room to work with with certain models than others, as far as how how much you can manipulate things. It's been fascinating hearing your insights, your very personal insights on bridges, and I'm I'm really happy to um, have drawn an analogy between bridges and dogs on this <laughs> podcast. And I hope lots of listeners will appreciate that. But final thing for me to say is, Aubrey, thanks so much for sharing your insights on bridges with the listeners of the Strad podcast so thanks a lot thank you so much for having me that was Aubrey K Alexander what are your bridge preferences if your bridge was a dog what type of dog would it be write to us at the Strad at the or on social media we'd love to hear from you and you might even win some strings if your correspondence is chosen as letter of the month there's an incentive. Don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news, articles, and reviews on all things to do with string playing. If you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. There's 50% off an online subscription for students, and if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days. Start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or rating. Thanks for listening, and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.